0: Of international relations here, otherwise known as A um, which the director told me some time ago is his favorite sort of professor at the LSE because it means he doesn't have to pay them. <laughs> um, and I'm very delighted to introduce Ambassador Newland, who is the United States Ambassador to NATO in Brussels and is just coming to the end of a three year posting there. She's a career State Department. She's served in a number of uh, countries from Cold War times on. She's just told me in the fact that she's a Russian and Chinese speaker. Um, and she's been dealing with NATO in one of the most interesting periods of post-Cold War transition. The problem with transition, as all students of international relations know, is the definition of transition is any period between two other periods of transition.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you. Thank you so much. What the professor did not say is that I uh, came into the State Department speaking Russian, and they promptly sent me to China, and then I slowly made my way across Mongolia to Russia to Brussels and to Brussels and to Brussels and never <laughs> made it either to London or Paris, so someday... <laughs> Well, a warm thanks to Lord Wallace, to Professor Gaskell, Professor Cox, Alan Revell, and to all of you for being here today in this wonderful room, in this wonderful university. It is such a treat to be back on campus and such a prestigious one, and I am delighted to see so many students, so many younger faces in the audience today, one of the greatest fears we have at NATO headquarters is that the generation that understands what the heck we do there in Brussels is dying off.
0: So, not, not
1: yet. Yeah, exactly. Not yet. Not yet. So we have to ensure that it's not just our fathers and our grandfathers who understand what NATO is all about, but that it is all of you, because you are also going to have to take our great alliance forward to the 21st century. Uh, Being on campus, again, also makes me a little bit nostalgic. In the early 80s, when I was a student, our preoccupations then were all about nuclear weapons counts and mutual assured destruction and keeping strong a NATO that had never fired a shot. And few Americans understood what the European Union was all about or had even heard of it. Okay, that hasn't changed too much, (laughs) Today more than 25 years later I join you in a different age, one where every schoolchild on both sides of the Atlantic knows what Al-Qaeda is but very few remember the Soviet Union. And one where we we are once again asking ourselves whether the structures that we built to take us through the Cold War, the NATO alliance, the EU, the World Bank, the UN, are they up to the 21st century challenges that we face today? I would argue that NATO has already done quite a bit to transform itself for new missions. Not only are we keeping the peace today in Kosovo and supporting security and stability with our Afghan partners in the Hindu Kush, we're also training the Iraqi military in Baghdad. We're supporting the African Union's Darfur mission with airlift and with training. We're developing counter-terror technologies and missile defenses and cybersecurity and other kinds of 21st century kit at the same time that NATO is deepening its partnerships with 40 countries across four continents running the gamut from Casablanca to Canberra. And at our next summit in Bucharest in just a few weeks we will invite new members into the Alliance proving once again that NATO like the EU is one of the most powerful magnets and mentors for democratic change in history. All right, I'm going to stop my little unpaid advertisement for NATO and follow with something completely counterintuitive, or at least you may think so, from somebody like me. As tomorrow's diplomats, journalists, parliamentarians, international lawyers, and business people, I hope you will consider it your first responsibility, in addition to building the strongest possible Britain, if you're British, and NATO to strengthen and build the security and defense capacities of the European Union. Okay, you're going to think this is strange, maybe a little bit suspicious to have the U.S. ambassador to NATO standing here urging you, the British and international leaders of the future, to build a strong ESDP. So why am I doing it? If we've learned anything, we, since September 11, 2001, or for that matter, over the past 60 to 100 years, it is that the U.S. and the U.K. not only need each other, we need a stronger Europe. We in the United States need a Europe that is as united as possible, ready and willing to bear the full measure of responsibility for defending our common security and advancing our shared values. And Brits and all Europeans need an America that is engaged and consulting with Europe, finding common solutions to common challenges. Just as our transatlantic unity in the 20th century ensured the defeat of fascism and Soviet communism, in the 21st century, we've got to continue to share the risk and share the responsibility for protecting and advancing the freedom that we enjoy. Today, the challenges we face run the gamut from terror, WMD, violent extremism, to the need to decrease our dependence on carbon fuels and to address the poverty, disease, and hunger that still afflict too much of the planet. Together, we have to manage a Kremlin that has tightened its grip on state power, su- suspended the Conventional Forces in Europe treaty, and threatened to target missiles on its neighbors, even as we work together with Russia and, on Iran, North Korea, and other vital shared interests. And we must also maintain the right mix of diplomacy and offers of political engagement, plus pressure on Iran to come back into compliance with the UN Security Council resolutions, abandon terror, and give its people the future that they deserve. And we have to encourage China to use its growing power for stability and peace, both in its neighborhood and globally. In short, we're living in a complex and dangerous world, one that requires those of us who are blessed to live in free societies, to join forces, to protect what we have at home, and to secure and enlarge the democratic community. As we in the United States look across the globe for partners in meeting all of these challenges, we, of course, look to our Asian allies and the other strong democracies, to our South, to our East but we will always consult early with London and the other member state capitals, but increasingly we're also turning to European institutions as well. With 15 missions now on three, uh, on three continents, the EU has proven its ability to de- deliver a whole which is greater than the sum of the ports. Today's EU brings development aid, human rights standards, anti-corruption programs, police trainers... <laughs> election monitors, cadre-building skills, but even more importantly, the capacity to put all these things together in the right combination to meet the challenges of the moment. Britain has been a leader in building these capacities within the EU, and they're paying off. Witness the EU's combined civil-military mission in Bosnia, and CIVPOL missions in East Timor and Rafa, and now peacekeeping efforts in Chad. We commend the EU's leadership on all of these issues. But just as the EU's capacity for common action on the soft power side is increasing, our collective transatlantic commitment on the hard power side has objectively gone down. If in 1980 the transatlantic average for national defense spending was 3% of gross domestic product, today it's 1.7%. And when you subtract the 4% that the American taxpayer contributes to that hole, our transatlantic average is closer to 1.4% GDP on defense, despite the fact that Britain continues to punch well above its weight, spending 2.32% of GDP on defense. So why has transatlantic security investment dropped at such a dangerous time? I think you know the answer because after the Cold War, we all took a peace dividend, and also because throughout the 90s and into this century, it was fashionable in salons in Europe and even some in the United States to believe that soft power was the only appropriate answer, that hard power was dangerous, that it drew enemies, and that using it was the mistake of overly militaristic societies. And yet in Chad those EU nations that participate are discovering that even to conduct a relatively modest peace support operation, you need desert-capable helicopters, you need long-range transport aircraft, you need sophisticated intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance assets, and modern interoperable communications equipment. All the development aid in the world, all the government support and police training, will do you no good if you can't first provide security for the people that you're trying to help. And my home organization, NATO, is learning the same lessons in Afghanistan today. So I'm here in London to say that the United States needs, the UK needs, NATO needs, the democratic world needs a stronger, more capable European defense capacity. An ESDP with only soft power is not enough, ladies and gentlemen. And it's going to take concerted UK leadership within the EU if we're going to get European defense spending growing again and if we're going to focus ESDP on the right things, including upgrading European military capabilities with badly needed investment in helicopters, UAVs, special forces, interoperable communications, and counterinsurgency-trained soldiers and civilians. This is an interest we share because American and U.K. soldiers and civilians cannot continue to bear so much of the global load without more help from more of our allies and more of our friends. And also because we know that if Europeans will invest in their own defense, they will also be stronger and more capable when we deploy together which takes me back to Afghanistan, one of my favorite subjects these days and the greatest operational challenge the NATO alliance has ever undertaken in its 59-year history. First, the good news. The NATO alliance that never fired a shot in the Cold War had some real operational successes in 2007 with our Afghan partners. Despite, Despite all those bleeding headlines that you read, The Taliban's much-vaunted spring offensive never materialized. Roads, schools, markets, businesses have been built all over the country. Today, 6 million Afghan kids go to school, a third of them girls. 80% of Afghans have access to health care, up from 20% just six years ago. And as President Karzai told those of us on the North Atlantic Council when we were there last week, Most of the Afghan people now live less than five kilometers from a clinic. Districts and villages throughout eastern and southern Afghanistan, from Ghazni to Khost to Paktika to Nuristan to Konar, to the Sangin Valley and Musakala in Helmand, to the areas uh, south of Kandahar, are more secure and more accessible than they've been in years, in some cases in decades the ranks of trained Afghan soldiers have swelled from 35,000 to almost 60,000. And the Afghans themselves are leading some key combat operations now, both in the east and in the south. This spring, my nation will send an additional 3,200 Marines to capitalize on the gains and support the Afghans, 2,200 for the ISF combat mission in the south and 1,000 more trainers for operation enduring freedom which is focused primarily on training police forces now in the south and the west at the same time we've got to be honest the intense challenge of this mission for afghans and for the nato alliance has become clear insurgents are resorting to deadly terrorist tactics of improvised explosive devices suicide bombings kidnappings and targeted assassinations They kill teachers in front of their students. They kill parliamentarians in their districts. And they kill foreigners in hotels in Kabul. And in the mountains and caves along the Afghan-Pakistan border, they plot and train still for the next attacks on our cities, yours and mine. In areas where security is weak, the Taliban and their drug lord enablers have pushed more of the prime land of Afghanistan into poppy production. Crime and corruption are on the rise, and the Afghan people grow more impatient every day to see action and justice from their elected leaders. Meanwhile, we as an international community have struggled to coordinate our efforts. And just as Iraq forced an adaptation in American and U.K. military and development tactics and strategy, the Afghan mission is forcing changes in NATO, With each passing month, allies learn more about what it takes to wage a 21st century counterinsurgency, a combined civil-military effort that puts warriors next to development workers, next to diplomats, next to police trainers. Whether we're flying helicopters across the desert at night, embedding our trainers with the Afghan security forces, conducting tribal councils with elders or running joint civilian-military-provincial reconstruction teams, most of our nations are reinventing the way we provide security. As Defense Secretary Gates has said, this requires new training, new doctrine, new equipment, new flexibility in combining a civil-military effort in a truly comprehensive way. As we surge soldiers to the south of Afghanistan this spring, we must also ensure that our civilian efforts are keeping pace. It's not enough to talk about knitting up civil and military efforts. We need to ensure we have joint action on the ground and enough money. This is why President Bush asked Congress last year for $10 billion additional dollars just for development and governance and counter-narcotics, on top of an additional $10 billion for security support because we've got to ensure that as we liberate communities, we are working with Afghan leaders to bring a better quality of life, new roads, schools, power, water, and employment options other than poppy. But in too much of Afghanistan, particularly in the South, the transatlantic community is under-invested in promoting good governance, rule of law, counter-narcotics, and anti-corruption programs. With these challenges in mind, we very much welcome Prime Minister Brown's enduring commitment to Afghanistan and his December 12th announcement that in 2009-2012, Britain will commit an additional 450 million pounds to Afghan development and stabilization assistance on top of the 490 million pounds Britain has already spent in the last six years. As my UK colleague on the NATO Council Ambassador Stuart Eldon and I have seen, uh, the effect of this investment on the ground is real. And we've also witnessed the hard work of the U.K.'s nearly 8,000 troops in Helmand province. In April 2007, Ambassador Eldon and I landed in Sangin in Helmand just five days after its liberation from the Taliban by Afghan, British, United States, Danish, and Estonian troops. Our guys that time were still sleeping rough on the floor of the Taliban Hilton, a former hospital that was still riddled with bullets from the battle. And we were also taken to a former U.K. outpost where just a week earlier, young men from the U.K. had spent months fending off rocket and grenade attacks from just a few yards away Taliban trenches. One of the most poignant moments was to see the names of the British fallen etched in the mud walls of the fort, brave young people, just 19, 20, 21, 22, your ages. But five months later, Stuart and I went back to Sangin last September. This time, the streets and markets of Sangin were alive with families and kids, and we visited a a newly refurbished school that would soon reopen for class. And today, a similar story is unfolding in Musakala, and Britain is again thinking about reinforcing its contingent of combatants and trainers in Helmand to solidify the gains. But too much of the burden, particularly in the south of Afghanistan, is still borne by the nations who have committed the most forces there. While the EU's 200-plus train-the-trainer police mission for Afghanistan is very welcome and playing an important role at the national and provincial level, we estimate that Afghanistan's going to need some 3,000 embedded police mentors to begin to turn the tide and create Afghan confidence in the effectiveness and trustworthiness of their local police. What could be more vital to winning hearts and minds of Afghans 18 months before the next election cycle in Afghanistan than to create confidence in the security of their communities? And speaking myself as a mom, I would say, what Afghan mother, what Afghan father is going to side with democratic change if they aren't sure that their kids are going to be safe tomorrow? As we like to say in Brussels, there can be no security without development, no development without security. The question is whether we're really practicing what we preach on the ground. All of which takes me back to my more fundamental point. We need a stronger EU, we need a stronger NATO and if Afghanistan has taught us anything, we need a stronger, more seamless relationship between these two great organizations. I'd go even further. If we truly believe in a transatlantic comprehensive approach to security, one that combines the best of our hard and our soft power, we need a place where we can plan and train for such missions, as a NATO-EU family. Okay, okay, don't get scared. I'm not talking about combining the institutions or even melding their mandates. All of you EU nicks out there, don't worry. That would not make sense for Europe, and it wouldn't make sense for North America. Europe needs a place where it can act independently, and the United States needs a Europe that is able and willing to do so in defense of our common interests and values. But we can't keep showing up side by side, in far-flung parts of the world, and playing a pickup game. Coalitions of the willing really have their limitations. As a transatlantic community, we have to learn to think and train and act together while preserving the autonomy of each of our institutions. This isn't simply about Afghanistan or Kosovo, where NATO and the EU are both involved. It's also about effective joint action wherever we are called to support security in the future, from the Palestinian territories to Africa to future challenges that we can only imagine today. And if we can do it together as a transatlantic community well, as core members of the UN family, we will also strengthen that organization's efforts. And there's a little bit of good news. The stars might actually be coming into an alignment for this kind of coherence. In Paris, we now have a president who's prepared to use his EU presidency to strengthen Europe's defense contribution and then bring France back into a renovated NATO. In Washington, leaders of all stripes, Democrats and Republicans, are calling for more, not less, Europe. And in London, David Miliband is calling on all of us to support the global civilian surge for democracy with both soft and hard power. So the old prejudices and calluses are fading on both shores of the Atlantic. Now we've got to show equal wisdom in breaking down the barriers within the organizations. On the EU side, a partner like Turkey, which contributes generously to EU missions and wants to cooperate with the European Defense Agency, should be welcomed, should be consulted, and should be offered a partnership security agreement and rights commensurate with the contributions that it makes. In response, NATO should open the doors of partnerships fully to Cyprus and finalize its security arrangements while encouraging Malta to come back to the Partnership for Peace. Longstanding members of both the EU and NATO, like the UK, France, and Germany, hold the keys to this kind of a grand bargain. The U.S. stands ready to help But Europeans have got to take the lead in melting the glaciers of the senseless, frozen conflict between NATO and the EU. With 21 of our members sitting in both the EU and NATO now, with renewed understanding on both sides of the Atlantic that we need each other, it only makes sense that we finally get this fixed. And as we've learned the hard way, my friend Frank Fukuyama was not right. History has not ended. And if we care about democracy and peace, we have to be stronger than those who oppose them. And we have to be willing to make the investment of blood and treasure to maintain that global balance of power that favors freedom, as my boss, Condi Rice, likes to say. This is going to take courage, it's going to take creativity, and it's going to take vision. It's also going to take considerable investment from all of us, my generation is prepared to start this kind of reshaping of one of history's greatest partnerships, the transatlantic union, to meet these latest challenges to our security and liberty. Your generation is going to have to finish it. Thanks very much. I look forward to our discussion.
0: Indeed, I'm only sorry you can't stay a little longer and come down the road to Westminster and give a speech like that to the many uh, British Parliament, people. It was a very short cab ride between the two. Things have changed quite radically in recent years, and as Ambassador Newland has been saying, uh, there are many who hope that they will change and integrate further. Now, we have plenty of time for questions. Um, what I'd like to do is to ask people to be short to say who they are and what they're studying or they're not studying, where they come from, um, as they rise, and I can see One or two hands already. We'll take that one then. Yes, or two. Shout. Oh. <laughs> for it, um, thank you very much for the very informative talk. Um, I was wondering if you could uh, say a few words about um, the role of NATO and the EU because um, you link them very closely
2: um, in Darfur. Um, I know this has been a, a topic on um, the agenda of both. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Should we take two or three at a time and uh, discuss uh, this one here? Uh,
2: Madam Ambassador, thank you very much. Do, do say who you are and what you're studying. Yes. You study. uh, my name is Alex Stout and I'm getting a Masters in Public Policy. Uh, one of the issues that you be- mentioned just glancingly uh, is missile defense, and I'm curious. Uh, first of all, is do you think that there'll be an agreement with uh, the Czech Republic and Poland before the Bucharest uh, summit in April? And also, uh, if you think it's possible that NATO could come to a more convincing uh, position on missile defense as a whole, uh, rather than just the piecemeal uh, theater missile defense if the U.S. can really be bolted on to that mission. Okay, one more.
0: Take one. Yes.
2: Uh, Hi, Martin Christopher. I'm actually studying information systems. Um, I went to a conference earlier this year in Shreveport, Louisiana, and an undersecretary of defense for Estonia gave a speech concerning the attack that they consider to have happened in May. What, if anything, is NATO doing to address, well, cybersecurity in their uh, charter?
1: I'm also delighted that LSE came up with a podium that wasn't too tall for me. Usually I give my speeches like this. Um, Darfur, thank you for that question. Um, I can speak more authoritatively about the NATO side. I I am less familiar with the EU side, although I have some sense of it. On the NATO side, uh, we have... Uh, lifted all of the African troops that serve in Darfur. We provide the transportation from their home bases uh, with our long-range aircraft into Darfur. We have um, planners embedded in the AU's center in Addis Ababa as well as their forward bases in Darfur to help them with their planning and their logistics. We train Some of the units and some of the officers, we have offered to do quite a bit more, and for a variety of reasons that I'm sure you're familiar with, including concern that we will take over. The African Union has been cautious so far, but there is more that that NATO could do if the African Union and the parties in the region were interested in that. On the EU side, uh, my understanding is that the – uh, commitment primarily goes to police training, humanitarian aid those kinds of those kinds of things and we do work those those embedded trainers in both AddIS and forward are both NATO and EU and they work very closely together. Uh, missile defense, thank you for that question. Um, we are uh, back into active negotiations with both Poland and the Czech Republic. Uh, I am cautiously optimistic that the um, first outlines of the bilateral agreements with both countries will be in hand, although I think there'll still be some issues that will need uh, to be finished after Bucharest. Uh, for those of you who don't know too much about this project, as you know, the United States has built uh, missile defenses to protect territorial U.S. We are now working, uh, and, and those are also supported by assets here in the U.K. and in, in, in Denmark. We have proposed putting uh, a, a radar in the Czech Republic, and ten interceptor missiles in Poland that would give us an extra layer of defense against a long-range threat from a country like Iran coming towards the United States but there's also collateral benefit for the Alliance because with those two sites We can also cover all of NATO territory against a long-range missile from Iran. What we can't do, though, is protect countries that are at medium and short-range threat from Iran, Turkey, Romania, Bulgaria, parts of Italy, parts of Greece. So at NATO, we're working on uh, options to complete the system at the medium and short-range and bolt those two systems together. We also work very actively with Russia in the NATO-Russia Council. We have developed the ability to field... NATO and Russian theater missile defenses to protect our deployed forces without hitting each other. We are now opening the door to further cooperation with Russia, but as you have probably seen in the news, Russia's not yet ready to say yes to that. But in the future I want to live in, we have a U.S. long-range system, we have a bolted on NATO medium and short-range system, and we have a cooperative system with Russia that covers all of us and serves as a powerful deterrent to the development of these kinds of weapons in the first place by countries like Iran. Cybersecurity, thank you for that. Um, The severity and depth of the attack on Estonia, I think, surprised all of us and really woke us up at NATO headquarters to the need to do more. As we head towards the Bucharest Summit, we have opened a center of excellence, a NATO center of excellence, in Estonia, where our experts come together and study and work on strengthening missile defenses. We have hardened our headquarters. We have developed a common set of standards and doctrine that we encourage all NATO nations to apply. But you know, this work continues as we learn more about this kind of uh, 21st-century weaponry.
0: Thank you. I'll take three more. Um, take one. Of the fun to start with. Then we'll take that one next. Hi, right, tell us who you are.
1: Uh, my name is Anna Pogosian, and I'm studying international relations, master's. Um, I had a question that you would speaking? you all tell me what your home countries are? It's just so great to see such an international crowd. I'm uh, Estonian, <laughs> partly, but I grew up in Canada, mm-hmm. and I'm from a Russian background, so. A little bit of everything. yeah. <laughs> um, you were talking about uh,
2: the promotion of uh, NATO cooperation with Russia and uh, the benefits that would hold, as well as the difficulties that Russia is posing at the moment. But to what extent do you think that strengthening NATO in the ways you were describing, as well as strengthening the uh, European security, would uh, pose problems to possible cooperations with Russia? Yes. Hi, my name is Alexis Crow. I'm studying um, a PhD in international relations here, um,
1: and I'm from the U.S. and lived here for about 10 years. Um, as you said, we live in a complex and dangerous world. Consequently, some of these dangers and risks that uh, the West faces can be perceived differently by different cultures and countries within the West, within NATO, as Iraq so painfully showed. Do you think it's possible that coalitions of the willing Can be embarked upon
2: within NATO um, in the future without endangering its shared values and common interests.
0: Let's take this one here.
1: These are great questions. I think I want to enroll. You guys are having far more fun than I'm having. (laughs) Hello. Hello, I'm originally from Hong Kong. and I've been here 20 years. Um, my question is, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about your view on the role of China um, in the security situation. Thank you. Good. All right. All right. Um, to simplify, does strengthening NATO make it harder to deal with Russia? Uh, I suppose it depends on where you sit. From the NATO perspective, we are strengthening NATO to deal with threats that frankly we believe nato and russia share threats of terror weapons of mass destruction failing states like afghanistan or potential that a state like afghanistan would again um, go backwards a uh, missile threat from iran that we both recognize so When we talk to Russia, when we try to work in our NATO-Russia Council, where we sit not as 26 plus 1 but as 27 in alphabetical order around the table, the point we're trying to make is when we work together, we are stronger against common problems than when we work separately. Um, But as you say, it hasn't always been easy. Uh, Russia perceives her interests differently than ours, for example, in Kosovo, in the context of the Conventional Forces in Europe Treaty, which they've now decided is unfair. Um, And in the context of missile defense, where no matter how many rounds of talks we have with them, no matter how many times we bring them to see these facilities and demonstrate that these 10 interceptors in Poland can't even reach an overflying Russian missile, let alone be a threat to it, it, it's been difficult. But some of those issues are political, and some of them are the season, we hope. Uh, And we will keep trying. We will keep trying to engage. And, frankly, the NATO-Russia structure is a potent new tool and if it doesn't always solve our political problems, at least when we exercise together, when we train together, a next generation of Russian young people, military, civilians are learning that we don't all have horns and tails, we hope. Um, coalitions of the willing within NATO. We, uh, we do do quite a bit of um, group, groups of nations within NATO work on capabilities. For example... Uh, The U.S. just led an effort of 20 nations, 19 NATO nations in Sweden, to acquire four C-17 long-range aircraft. Most of these countries didn't need a whole C-17, didn't want to pay for it, so they could buy 20 percent or 30 percent. It's like um, net jets, you know, like corporate jets. And that's worked great. And we've done a number of capability acquisitions like that. In terms of going into combat as a group within NATO, Um, That would be a coalition of the willing that would not be NATO. Um, What has happened I think you see in places in Afghanistan and in Kosovo is if we can make a political decision together that the mission is of common security interest then under that each nation can make its own national decision how it will contribute. That has led to some great news, like in Kosovo, where everybody contributes generously and we have no caveats, finally. It's also led to some of the difficulties you've seen in Afghanistan, where some nations are really stretched to the bone and others are more cautious about what they will give. So it's it's an evolving, transforming alliance, which you guys are going to make even better when you're running it. China... Um, I think i don't want to go since i don't work on China directly in my current life i don't want to go too much further than what I've said, which is that you know china is a is a nation that is um, emerging from a regional role to a global role. It now has um, deeper and stronger and richer relationships with countries in Europe, countries in Africa countries in Latin America that it never had before and our our collective transatlantic message I think to China is to use that that power and that influence to be a good steward, uh, a responsible steward, and to encourage uh, openness, cooperation, and mutual efforts against um, common threats. And in that context, I think all of us have, have urged China to do more with regard to Darfur and other issues like that, which, which you see coming forward now.
0: Thank you. Just China has now... Significant troops in UN peacekeeping operations. What yeah, actually, say, oh, the, wish to
1: yes, that that is actually a very very good point, point, Professor. I mean, to see to see China deployed with peacekeepers in Lebanon, I mean that is a truly important global contribution which we should encourage.
0: Yeah. Thanks. Um, you
2: next. I missed you last time. Thank you. Hi, I'm Lynn. I'm. Uh, in general
1: course student here, and I'll say just for the year, and from America. Um, you Way too many Americans get in the microphone
2: here. <laughs> um, hopefully, there'll be easier questions for you.
1: <laughs> Take the Foreign Service exam, you Americans. Yeah. <laughs>
2: um, actually, uh, that, that is um, one of the things that I, I'd like
1: to commend you on is seeing a, a strong female in a, a very high position. It's always nice Thank to you. see. Um, you, you call for a stronger Europe and a stronger EU. Do you see that maybe European nations? Um, are working towards this, but that maybe their collective security interests are diverging from, you know, NATO collective security interests, and that potentially they're more concerned with uh, a mission in Chad than, say, a mission in Afghanistan or other regions that are more of interest to them based on, you know, historical background and whatnot.
2: Thanks. Um,
0: let's take the young lady with the long hair.
1: By the way, gentlemen, these ladies are trouncing you. I think it's women's questions, uh, 6 out of, out of 10.
2: Sorry, another American question. I'm studying European political economy, and I was wondering, uh, do you think that the increase announced at the Bucharest Summit in April will impact the Kosovo crisis? And what role do you see the EU forces versus NATO forces playing in stabilizing Kosovo and burden-sharing and also in the overall stabilization of the region? Thank
0: you. Christina, behind. I know you're not American.
1: <laughs> From Spain, Cristina Bares, I'm a PhD student, International Relations Department. My question is about the Security Council on, in general, United Nations. Uh, just because there is no money, there is no tasks for them or burden-sharing tasks. Uh, I see the link with the EU and NATO, and I really appreciated your presentation. But where is the Security Council? Don't we have any security operations? Okay. Um, to summarize the first question, so is it not that the EU is not doing its thing? It's that its thing it's chosen different things than than what we might choose. Uh, you know, I think one of the key realizations that all of us in the transatlantic community, the thirty-two nations that make up both NATO and the EU, are coming to grips with, is that there is just far too much work in the security stabilization world uh, for the capacity that we've got. This was the key point that Sarkozy made when he came to the U.S. Congress, that our civilian and military capacity is not keeping pace with the work that we have to do. So I don't think it's so much that EU countries choose Chad versus Afghanistan. Frankly, all NATO members, including the 21 who are also in the EU, are doing a lot in Afghanistan. It's a question of whether we can do all of them at the same time and whether we can pick the right tools to do them. And in some cases, like when it comes to needing helicopters, there just isn't enough to do all of these missions that we've committed ourselves to. So... Um, I don't think we have a divergence of interest. I do think we have a a little bit of a division of labor emerging, but I also hope that we have a recognition that you can do more with the same amount of money if you economize, but not enough more for the times, which demand a lot more. So we've all got to invest more. Kosovo, uh, role of EU, role of NATO. Um, This is actually a a good example, well, we'll see how it works out, but it it should be a good example of the two organizations working side by side and each pulling their weight. The idea here is that NATO would continue to maintain the military peacekeeping force and also um, we've now been asked by the Kosovars to accept the role of training their very small military of the future, which is also our exit strategy. And the EU will take over from the UN in mentoring and strengthening the Kosovar police. So we do the military, the EU does the police, and together that transatlantic community can work the spectrum of security. So um, we'll see how it goes, but that's that's the intention, and, and it's a good example of working together. The role of the UN, we've got strong NATO, strong EU, where's the UN in all of this? Um, I think I said at some point, maybe it went by too fast, that if if NATO and the EU together, the 32 countries, can get stronger across the spectrum of security, from the soft civilian side all the way to the hard military side, then as the major stakeholders within the UN, we'll also be stronger when we go and and work together in UN missions. ISAF is a UN mission, after all. Um, It's NATO-led, but NATO subcontracted. In the the U.N. system, I think the 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 issue in the U.N. Security Council, as you know, when you look at that membership, is is do the five permanent members to start with all agree what needs to be done and who needs to do it, um, let alone adding adding the rest of the Security Council. So I think from a transatlantic point of view, uh, obviously we all want to strengthen the 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 U.N. But let's be strong among ourselves first, and let's have that that full spectrum of hard and soft power available. Um, so that we can influence the way the UN does its business and, and serve better when we support a UN operation.
0: Thank you. Take just a few more. Hi,
1: I'm Valentina from BBC.
0: Take this one here. Hi, I'm Valentina from BBC, yeah.
1: Hi, Valentina from BBC World Service. And I would like to ask you uh, which countries are going to be invited at the next summit in Bucharest
0: to join? Us. Yes. yes.
1: Do you really think I'm going to make that decision for the tw- <laughs> no, 26 no, heads of no, state I and government? You could, uh, give us some Good try, though, BBC. <laughs>
0: <laughs> OK. As the hand, the one furthest to the back. There.
2: Um, I'm Jessica, and I'm
1: I'm an international law student uh, from Hong Kong. Um, You've given an overview of the global security issues ranging from the military security such as terrorism and human security such as uh, poverty, but I'm wondering if there there are global security issues. Why is it being dealt with from NATO rather from a global perspective? And it seems to me that it's setting the agenda from a transatlantic point of view rather from a global point of view.
2: Oh, yeah. uh, hands up front, the of um, hi, I'm uh, from Canada studying politics and communication. Uh, my question is about the Afghan mission. Uh, there's a lot of concern in Canada about burden sharing among allies. Uh, there's a sense of an uneven, unfair distribution of labor with many countries joining development efforts and training and few taking on combat roles, especially in the Kandahar region. Um, Could you comment on a way out of this burden-sharing dilemma, what it means for NATO, for the Afghan mission, and for future missions?
1: Okay, first on uh, who's going to get invited. Uh, Those of you who follow NATO know that we have three countries in the membership action plan, NATO's um, training program for would-be members, Albania, Macedonia, and Croatia. All of them have been working very hard for a long time, in some cases seven years, nine years, six years, and all of them are hopeful that they will get invitations at Bucharest. Uh, From a U.S. point of view, we have been encouraging every single one of them to keep working, keep, keep deepening and strengthening their democratic reforms, their contribution to our common security, and heads of state and government will make the final decision on April 3rd, so stay tuned. Um, NATO versus global. Uh, first, let me just say uh, that the the subject of this talk was transforming the transatlantic security structure for the 21st century. So I did not arrive here at LSE prepared to take on the world. I generally leave that to Condi Rice. Um, but you're absolutely right that as we talk about our transatlantic contribution to global security, we also have to bring... Uh, with us as many friends and partners around the world who have uh, hard and soft power to offer. Let me just do another unpaid advertisement for a a program going on at NATO that you may or may not know about, uh, which we call the global partnership, others call something more modest, but essentially... Uh, NATO, since its last summit a year ago, has now opened the tools of partnership, everything from NATO exercises to training opportunities at our schools to working together in research and development, countering IEDs, these kinds of things, to preparing to join our missions to these 40 countries across the planet and, and now countries like Japan, uh, Korea, Australia, New Zealand, Morocco, Israel, Egypt, have individual security, agree- individual partnership agreements with NATO and participate in all of our activities. And it also allows us to, to mix and match countries. You know, countries who are interested in missile defense, both from the, atli- from the alliance and from around the world, can come together to work together. Countries that want to learn more about um, Border security techniques can come together and work together at NATO. So, NATO is becoming uh, what I like to call not only the 26, but the core of a global democratic security community. Um, Afghanistan and burden sharing, something that all of us who are heavily committed in Afghanistan uh, care about and worry about, the subject of virtually every NATO ministerial and certainly our upcoming summit in Bucharest. I would say that it is important not to lose sight of how far we've come in just a year and a half of NATO running the entire uh, stability operation throughout Afghanistan. When we first uh, went into the south and east of Afghanistan as NATO, it was the Afghans and five, six, seven, eight allies. Now we have 12, 13, 14 allies working in the south and the east of Afghanistan. And I would like to optimistically predict that there'll be a few more by our Bucharest Summit. So I think it's, it's a matter of um, continuing to encourage every ally to dig deep and do as much as, as, as they can, as well as encouraging the structural reforms, the, disp- the defense spending, and the upgrading of capability um, that allows countries to make these contributions.
0: Thank you. I think we have time. Perhaps two more rounds of questions at most. Um, That's a very demonstrative hand there, so we have to take that one. Just in in front here. And then the one on the back I'll take after that.
1: Thank you. Adela, International Relations. Uh, My question is also related to the summit in Bucharest and uh, the possible new members. And I uh, I wanted to ask you about the possible Greek veto over the entry of Macedonia and whether, uh, if this actually materializes, NATO actually will propose some alternative partnership which is short which is short of membership but nevertheless make sure that stability in the Balkans is maintained. Thank you. What's your home country? Uh, Macedonia. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you mean the former Yugoslav Republic I I swear back
2: Thank you. My name, my name is Andy Rabins. I'm a master's student in international relations from Berkeley, California. Um, Madam Ambassador, you, why
1: are you not at Berkeley? The sun shines more uh, often. That's a, yeah. a good but question. This is a cooler place, right?
2: Um, Madam Ambassador, yeah. you mentioned you mentioned Iran uh, on, on about a handful of times during your speech um, as an emerging threat, and and I was curious as to whether what kind of role NATO was playing in regards to trying to bring Iran in as a potential constructive uh, force in, in regards to Afghanistan. And also, as a skilled as a skilled U.S. diplomat uh, in the foreign service, what's what's your opinion on the U.S. policy of uh, bringing our ambassadors and bringing, breaking diplomatic ties with countries that uh, tend to do stuff that uh, doesn't seem to be in the U.S. interest?
0: Well, a lot of those, but still, question the caller at the back.
1: Hello, I'm Maria So I'm an alumni. I'm currently a consultant for the World Bank. I have a very personal question. How is it to work as a woman in the
2: NATO? <laughs> That's, That's a fun right. one.
1: Yes. That's a fun one. Okay. Um, starting with the Macedonian question, the number one thing that Skopje and the people of Macedonia have to keep doing to be ready to get a NATO invitation is keep working hard on your internal reforms. That is, that is Macedonia's job number one, so that you are presenting the best case on April 3rd. I think you know that we um, have strongly supported the U.N. process to negotiate a permanent international name for what the United States calls the Republic of Macedonia. Um, Matt Nimitz has intensified his negotiations. He had a round last week. I think there will be an up, another upcoming round to try to settle this issue and we were encouraging uh, both Macedonia and Greece to engage actively and to try to settle this issue before Bucharest. Uh, Iran, NATO, Afghanistan, breaking of diplomatic ties. You're just going to get me in trouble with my bosses, aren't you? Um, One of the beauties of of an organization like NATO is that Different member states have different qualities of relationship with different countries. The United States has a very strong relationship with Pakistan, so we can um, work intensively with them on issues of interest to NATO, particularly Afghanistan. Other NATO members have a strong relationship with Iran, where we have none. So um, particularly those countries who work on the western border with Iran, Italy, Spain, there is, uh, they have diplomatic relations, and they are able to, work intensively to try to get the most cooperative uh, relationship between those two countries who have very long and deep historic ties. In terms of the diplomacy with Iran and trying to encourage the best, even as we are strong in case that scenario doesn't happen, the diplomacy has been led, as you know, by by the EU3 and the US participating And and NATO has not needed to play a role in that because it's being handled elsewhere. This is another good example of burden sharing. I think the the NATO role comes in in the context of um, an Iran that sees so many of its neighbors now having... Productive relationships with NATO and the prospect of that we have partnerships with the four four out of the six Gulf countries we have uh, this training mission in Iraq we are active in Afghanistan, so the prospect of, of of doing things together cooperatively in a peace, but at the same time, a NATO that is looking at the potential requirement to assist with missile defenses if Iran continues its uh, missile development program so there 's a little bit of going each way. Uh, look, there comes a time in the history of nations where something so awful and egregious happens, like, uh, luckily you were probably not born by the look of you, um, like the the awful taking of, of of U.S. diplomats in Tehran, that you can no longer support a relationship. The difficult part becomes when is it time to resume that relationship. You know, this... Uh, for the first time since 1979, the United States is offering now to resume diplomatic relations with Iran, and we're only asking for one simple thing, which is that they freeze that program and come back into compliance with the UNSC, come back into the the world of civilized behavior. So that is a, a very strong and open offer and one that the people of Iran really deserve to have accepted. By their government, and I hope it does happen. What's it like to be a chick at NATO? Well, <laughs> I am—I'm the only woman among the 26 around the table, and I got to say it's kind of fun, you know. It—it uh, uh, is—it is. Uh, it is um, I, I do think that although we are all there to represent our countries, I think uh, women, and particularly moms—I'm a mom. I have an 11-year-old and a 9-year-old. Um, come at the issue of, of of team building and relationship building slightly differently than men do. So sometimes when the when the men get a little testy, I'm I'm able to uh, sort of come in with a little different style. But um, I'm sure you know, combination of being in the United States and being different, I irritate them as well. So it's a little bit of a little bit of both. But they certainly never forget me. So it's it's fun. Fine. Yeah. Thanks.
0: I'm going to beg the last question for myself. So I'm going to take one more question to the floor. Anyone else would like to? I'll take this one back here in
1: I forgot to say that I affectionately refer to them as my 25 boyfriends. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes. uh, many thanks for your talk. I'm also from the United States. My name is Katie. I'm studying international relations as a master's student. Um, just on Friday, uh, a talk was given just down the road at. Um, I I S S about um, presenting a, a potential grant strategy for NATO and the Transatlantic Alliance. Was it any good? Um, I thought it was very good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who was it? Um, uh, it was their part of their um, their immediate uh, suggestions in the in the immediate term were um, two of them caught my interest, and I was wondering about your appraisal of the feasibility of these two particular components. One was uh,
1: they had a the suggestion to um, abandon consensus voting at be, everything
2: below the council level. And, um, oh, I hate that one. Majority <laughs> okay. <voting. Keep> that <laughs> one. <laughs> and the other was um, to abolish the system of national caveats. And I was wondering about your appraisal of the feasibility of these um, particular suggestions. Thanks. Good.
0: And I'm to g- ask the last question, which is how much more can NATO grow? I mean, you talked about those who already got membership action programs, but we know and I can see one of the people in the audience who come from the other countries that would like to have membership action Programs around the Black Sea and beyond. Um, do you see NATO enlargement as a process which can roll a great deal further on, or does it stop when it reaches what some was say regards the boundaries of Europe, wherever they may be?
1: We're going to forgive the professor for asking a dinosaur question. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, consensus. Uh, in, in certain contexts, we already we, we do uh, relax the consensus rules below the level of the council and the political level above. For example, when we're working on capabilities, when we do a common build of some nations, we don't require everybody to be part of it, and that's worked pretty well, and I think we can continue to do that. On fundamental issues like um, where are we going and why and what are we spending, Um, You know, from from my point of view, the United States can go out and build a coalition of the willing if we want to. The power of NATO is our traditional European allies, North America, together, deciding all 26 of us, all 29 of us, all 52 of us, that it's important enough to our common security that we're going to do it together and everybody's going to give in some way. And when we do that, it is powerful on this planet, and I wouldn't want to... um, To diminish that, I wouldn't want to diminish it. And it's hard damn work, let me tell you. I spend a lot of time twisting arms and having mine twisted and making trades, and and it's fun. So those of you who want to be diplomats, come join us. Um, Multilateral diplomacy is a lot of fun. Uh, National caveats. Um, This is a stickier one. I think, you know, there are a lot of reasons why countries caveat their forces. The obvious one is the political one. You don't want to fight. That is often the least... um, likely reason. Sometimes it has to do with the capability of forces. Country X will caveat against flying at night because they haven't invested in night vision for the desert. Uh, country Y will caveat against mountain combat because they're not, they, they come from a hot country and haven't trained for it. So um, I think the, the issue is mission by mission to try to drop as many politically motivated caveats as possible at the same time that we strengthen the capability base so more nations can do more together. But to sort of universally say, hey, no caveats tomorrow, I don't think that that is realistic. How big can NATO grow? Uh, go back and read your treaty, 1949, any Euro-Atlantic democracy. Any Euro-Atlantic democracy. Um, From a U.S. point of view, the number of countries at the table is not the issue that is difficult about NATO. It is whether we all have the will to do the same thing. And as we look across at the new members that have joined NATO in the last 10 years, some of them are the most motivated and active contributors to security and have the best defense budgets because they have recent history of living in a dangerous world and, and investing for defense because they believe in it. Uh, So, I think it's more a matter of NATO's, uh, of of nations being ready, their their democracy being strong enough and deep enough, the national consensus being strong enough, and the willingness to commit blood and treasure to protect ourselves together. And so that's why the membership action plan, being in there as long as it takes to get ready, is important. But I wouldn't want to close the door on any Euro-Atlantic country, including Russia, if she someday decides it would be a different Russia and a different NATO. But we should not close the, the door on any country that meets the definition of the treaty, in my view. Thank you. Thank you all. You're great.
0: Thank you very much. Just one final comment. Um, the United States tends to appoint men with grey hair to be ambassadors to the EU. They're falling into a definite pattern of appointing young people. Gender is, is, is another aspect of this as uh, ambassadors to the EU. So I look forward to, to a 30-year-old being appointed ambassador later up to you. Very Thanks nice a lot. So Thanks
1: so much. Thanks, everybody.